1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Jennifer Stuba about the new book, Eight Billion and Counting How Sex, Death, and Migration Shaped Our World. A provocative description of the power of population change to create the conditions for societal transformation. Well Jennifer welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So how are you? How is your week going?
0: Everything is going well. We are into our summer here and so uh, it's hot days but long lazy hot days. And can you tell
1: us what do you do?
0: I am a writer and professor, of international studies and I focus on population trends. So in my work, I try to explain to students and other audiences why population trends matter for big questions like um, why is there war or why are some countries poorer than others?
1: And how did you get interested in this field? I went to a
0: really small women's college in Atlanta, Georgia called Agnes Scott College for my undergraduate degree. And I think there's some, some benefits to going to a small school because you don't have as many choices as what courses you take. So often that means you take courses that maybe you wouldn't have chosen to begin with. And um, one of these was a migration course. And I had just a really fabulous professor, Dr. Feng Xu, And she really um, brought to life just the variety of angles on migration um, it was very interdisciplinary approach to it. So not totally political science, but cultural studies and um, history and anthropology. And I just got to learn a lot of the gender issues, the political policy issues, um, economic issues around migration, and same for some issues about environment. And so I knew I wanted to be a college professor because I had such great college professors. And I just, Uh, super nerd about that. So I asked her, you know, are there places where I could go to graduate school where when people talk about national security, they don't just talk about guns and bombs part of it, but they talk about what are the real underlying reasons why people go to war? I'm thinking like, you know, the environment. And she said, absolutely. University of Maryland is really strong in environment. And so that's where I went to get my PhD.
1: And what role did those mentors play in uh, your uh, journey?
0: I think, you know, far and away, my, my undergraduate professors, um, many of whom I'm still in touch with, played a pivotal role in shaping my approach to these subjects, just the way that they were always so interdisciplinary. Um That is not necessarily rewarded when you are at the graduate level, as you know, you know, and many other people know. We get really siloed, and you're expected to be very narrow and have a narrow expertise in a particular area, and it and the whole system doesn't really reward that expansive thinking. I feel like I've always pushed back against that. Um, Now, and there are penalties for it. I think there 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 can be intellectual penalties for it. People don't know where to put you. Maybe it could hurt your ability to publish in journals, things like that. But I, I think personally, the reward is tremendous. So that mentorship through example uh, was really important. And then during my graduate school, the mentors that I had while I worked at the U.S. Department of Defense, though they were in, uh, indispensable. So I did have the opportunity while I was working on my dissertation at the University of Maryland, which is is right in Washington, DC, I, I had a, a time where I thought, well, I'm pretty sure I want to be a college professor. But also, I, while I'm here, I'd like to see if I might be interested in the policy aspect of this. And so I was fortunate enough to get first an internship, which was kind of funny, because I was by far the oldest intern, I think I was 25. So it was a, a along with other undergraduates, was an intern um, for the Department of Defense and then got pulled up as a consultant to work for um, policy. So the strategy office in the Pentagon's policy arm on demography. And so what I did while I was there was really learn, it was like another education, you know, another degree really to see what it, how do people take academic research and translate it into policy action. And that has been invaluable for how I try to take my own academic research since then and translate it to policy action. And the people who um, I worked with at that time, they continue to support me, you know, even as I've launched this book by helping me host talks and connecting me with other people. It's just really a fantastic network.
1: And what would you say to our student listeners and maybe early career researchers as well?
0: I think it's important to get experience outside of what you think you want to do. When I was at the Department of Defense, I knew when it was time for me to go. And for me, that time to go was when I had more questions than answers. And when you're working in those kinds of situations, whether it's for your own state department or your own you know, national security community, you don't have time to look into those answers like a researcher would. So I knew it was time to go. And for me to go back into academia and spend my career researching, but likewise, I now know when it's time for me to stop my research and share back with the policy community. And I think that's because I took a risk, and you know, it can slow you down. If you if you're really just thinking about like an endpoint, um, it can cause you to have a meandering path to get to wherever your endpoint is. But I, I think it's invaluable to get a variety of experience, because, you know, there are lots of people who try to write policy-relevant research who've never worked in policy a day in their lives, and I think that's much harder for them to understand how policymakers actually use their work, Um, and that's just one example. I think for, you know, any students of mine, I say, get all kinds of experiences, because then you know what you don't want to do. It's not like you get experiences to figure out what you do want to do. Often you get them and say, nope, that's not for me. I mean, I've had internships in business development and marketing and, you know, fundraising, all kinds of things before I became a professor. And you'd be surprised even now how much I draw on that experience for
1: event planning
0: and book talks and all of those things.
1: Oh, love it. So your latest book is 8 Billion and Counting, How Sex, Death, and Migration Shape Our World. So what inspired you to write it?
0: Those conversations with policymakers. I really think of this book as my answer to all of the questions that I've gotten over the last 15 years from people in the business community and advocates and policymakers about why demographics matter it seems to me that everybody knows a little something about demographics. Uh, You know, they know general trends or that China has a really big population or that, you know, India has had a big population and so on. But often that's kind of where it stops. Mm. And so what I wanted to do in this book is think of all the questions. I really get asked similar questions over and over, over 15 years across audiences. And to me, that meant that I could write a book that would address those um, and really touch on multiple audiences.
1: Excellent. So let's dive into the book. And can we start with a sort of very basic background? So could you describe what is the state of the world that we live in now?
0: Absolutely. So as the title says, our eight billionth person is about to be born. And that's really a remarkable thing because we only hit these milestones around every 12 or 13 years. And in fact, when we go to hit nine, it'll be even longer before we hit 9 billion, because world population growth is slowing. So I thought it was important for us to, timing-wise, you know, I've wanted to write this book for a long time as that frequently asked questions in some ways, but why now? And it's because we have our 8th 8th billionth person about to be born. And so- The world that this person will be born into is really remarkably different than the world that the seven billionth person or six billionth person would have been born into. And as I describe in the book, the previous century was one of exponential population growth. 1900, the year 1900, we had around 1.6 billion people on earth. But by the end of that century, there were 6.1 billion. So just tremendous um, explosion of population growth. And that's not a term, a word I use very often because it kind of conjures some alarmism. But I think in this Mm -hmm. case, it'd be all right for us to say we saw exponential growth. Um, This century is different. Although we're already at 8 billion, it's slowing. What we see with this century is the widest gulf in trends than we've ever seen before. And that is in sex, death, and migration, as the uh, title of the book says. So we have, you know, a tremendous difference between the number of babies born per minute on average in developed countries and the number of babies born per minute on average in those less developed countries. Um, We have tremendous differences in life expectancy. Migration has very uneven consequences and trends around the world. And so I wanted to in this book show how big the gulf is in those trends worldwide, but also at the end of the book by the time you're finished reading, you can understand that we're all headed down the same path and that is a path of population aging. And many people who write about population aging and this would include those in the media they talk about it all doom and gloom. So, this is the gray menace. This is the thing to be feared. And I think it's we fear what we don't understand. And population aging is our newest trend. We don't have data stretching out over a century like we do for population growth. I mean, all of our theories, all of our thinking about economics and politics they were formed under conditions of population growth. Now the conditions have changed. And so we need a general rethinking of our entire approach to the world.
1: So what are some some of those uh, usual models that we have when we think about demographics and human populations? The
0: one that I want people to think about, and I don't know the answer to this. So I think this is a call to action for people in their thinking. I teach a lot on the environment. I teach environmental politics. And we know that the goal of our economic approach, and I say our meaning just this neoliberal economic approach that the whole world kind of, it's involved in the system, whether or not you agree with it. This is our our global system. It's capitalist and liberal economic system. It's unending growth. So our, our measures of success, how do we know an economy is doing well? Is it growing? Well, if you have a condition where populations are actually shrinking, and by the way, I ran the numbers the other week, we're over 40 countries right now have shrinking populations. This is not an unusual thing. When I was working on my dissertation, it was really just a handful of countries. And now we're like over 40 and growing every year, the number of shrinking countries. So is it appropriate for us to measure economic success with infinite growth? we certainly environmentally minded folks know there've been tremendous consequences to pursuing infinite economic growth in terms of what it has done to the planet. So how else could we think about
1: economic health? So you present this concept in your book, which you call differential growth. Could you explain what that is?
0: Sure. So... If we look at, um, it it seems like an oversimplification, but let's just say right now, poor countries and rich countries, um, countries that have high GDP per capita and countries that have low GDP per capita, more industrialized, less industrialized, stick those as two different camps. The countries that are on the wealthier end of things, more industrialized, they have what's called below replacement fertility. Basically replacement fertility is two, one to replace the mommy, one to replace the daddy, biologically speaking. So anything above two means that your population will be growing over time. Anything below two means your population will eventually be shrinking. So those countries at the wealthier end of the spectrum, one of their demographic trends is that they have um, low fertility. They also have longer life expectancies on average. So that leads to a case where the median age of the population is um, higher. So if we lined up everybody in a country from age zero to age 100 in order by age, and we ask the middle person to raise their hand, you get very different numbers around the world. Japan's median age is over 40, and they are the oldest country on the planet. In Nigeria, I think the median age right now uh, is 18. So they're one of the youngest countries on the planet. And so the other end of that spectrum is that the lower income countries have higher fertility. And I'll put a little asterisk on that that I can come back to. But they have relatively higher fertility and they have relatively lower life expectancy. So there you get your differential growth, you know, kind of two sets of trends. But that little asterisk I mentioned is that there are very few places on the planet where fertility is still really high. And so one of the principles that I think comes out of my book is that trends change, but our thinking doesn't always keep up with it. A lot of people I talk to still think that really high population growth is a major issue in the world. But when I run the numbers, there are only, um, there are only a few countries where we have very high fertility and and here's how this would work out. So um, many of your listeners might have had to encounter the population bomb by Paul Ehrlich. It was published in 1968. And this it's, it's kind of the straw man that's set up for this population environment, but it was an influential book at the time and even since then. And so the population bomb basically argued that humans were, let me put this in some air quotes, breeding themselves into extinction, that population grows exponentially, um, but food production grows only linearly. And so there would be mass starvation and death. And it's an echo of the Malthusian argument um, Thomas Malthus made principles of population in the late 1700s. So at the time, it actually makes sense that people would have been worried about a population bomb. Because when you look at the numbers and count the number of countries in the world where the average total fertility rate, so this is the average number of babies born to a woman in her lifetime, was five or more. There were 127 countries at the time where women had five or more children on average. And I don't know how many countries we would have counted in 1968, but you know, obviously it was fewer than we have now because the number of countries has kind of grown over time. So that's a lot by the time I start learning about population as an undergraduate, getting ready to graduate, uh, there were only about 39 or so countries where 30, yeah, 39 countries where the total fertility rate was five or more. That would be in the year 2000. And then how many are there today? Do you want to guess? Do you know how many there are today? Five? (laughs) Close. There are eight. There are only eight countries. Only eight. Now, I have to say, I'm constantly surprised by demographic data, because even though I know the principle that trends change and our thinking doesn't always keep up, I it happens to me all the time as well. In fact, the most recent time I got surprised, I have a newsletter, which um, your listeners can find. It's called A World of Eight Billion, and that's on Substack. And I'm preparing an issue on India. So as I'm preparing this issue, I thought, oh, this is great. I can just crank this out. I'm going to talk about what the next Indian census will find. And this will be easy because I already know this. And so I'm going in, but you know, I always check my data and I realized, oh, I can't publish this right now because even in the last few years, India's fertility rate has fallen below replacement. Now I knew it was right at it, but I didn't know it had gone below. And so I, I think that in an Just that one example would surprise most people because India is the country that inspired Paul Ehrlich to write the population bomb. It is the one people often think of as still being so young and growing. And yet, even India has seen this fall in fertility rates. So, there's still differential growth, though, to go back to that point, because there's something called population momentum. And that's the tendency of a country to keep growing, it's like inertia. Think about the size of those childbearing cohorts is large from times when fertility was higher. So that means there's still a lot of potential mothers in society. So it takes a couple of decades before those the size of those mother cohorts is smaller. So India's population is still growing. So if we think about what kind of issues does India have now, opportunities or challenges, either one. Um, they still have a relatively young and growing population, but baked into it is not forever. It's on its way to, you know, moving toward this aging world. So when I try to say, what's the snapshot of a world of 8 billion? It is a, is a world of differential trends, really wide differences in birth, death, and migration but where everybody's moving along the same path so that when we get to that world of 9 and 10 billion, we will be an aging, smaller, uh, in many senses, world.
1: And how did the ethnic composition of the human populations change throughout, especially uh, sort of closest history to us in 20th and now 21st century?
0: That's a great question. And I think it's one that researchers can pay attention to both at the global level and at the subnational level. So globally, the places where population is growing the slowest and that can include shrinking is western Europe, east Asia, and North America. So those folks will become less of a proportion of the world population. Places where it's growing the fastest are Central Asia, and sub-Saharan Africa in particular. And so those folks will become a higher proportion of world population over time. Um, We do see a difference, of course, uh, within countries. And I think that's more interesting. I mean, as I'm a political scientist and so I'm always interested in power, who has power in society. and, And then of course, what do they do with it? And so in Countries around the world, there's differential growth among ethnic groups. I mean, we can even look, I'll, I'll put a race spin on it and, and be in the United States where I am. And we know that all races in the United States have much lower fertility today than they did in the past. Um, and that includes being sub-replacement fertility. But the younger generations in America are far more racially diverse than the older generations in America. So if we look to what will America look like, you know, in 50 years, don't even have to say 50, we could say in 20 years is a much more diverse country in the future. Mm. And of course, we have a lot of um, political stress, um, arguments, fights, violence around those changes. And that is not unique to America. And it's been the case, you know, around the world and throughout history that would one group grows faster than another, it, people can feel like their power and position in society is threatened and therefore they often act in violent ways to counter that.
1: Yeah, so my, my next question is probably a little uh, quite broad, but I was uh, wondering then how demographics are actually impacting of on what's going on in the world.
0: I think it's the foundation of everything, but, this is where my political science training and perspective comes in because you know I'm not a demographer in the sense that you know here here are the data and here's how we got them and here's what drive the demographic trends I'm more on the other side of that which is so what about the trends and you can have the same demographic trend in two different countries with two very different outcomes and that's because the rules of the game what we would say are our political institutions. The rules of the game matter. So for example, this, I mean, maybe people might find retirement a boring subject because we all, all feel, many of your listeners probably feel far away from retirement, but bear with me. So if we think about population aging as a trend, and let's say we're going to look at um, Greece and Japan. Well, Greece and Japan both have Older populations defined as higher median ages, um, relatively greater proportion of people at older ages than younger ages. Does population aging mean the same thing economically in both countries? Well, no, it doesn't because the rules of the game are different for retirement, for example. So um, even the, the effective retirement age, the age at which people actually retire has been about 71 years old in Japan. And it has been, there were times when it was as low as about 55 in Greece. It's gone up since then. Um, But that's because the rules of the game changed. So does population aging look exactly the same in those two countries in terms of support for the elderly? No, because they're totally different ages at which people exit the workforce or even help. Let's look at, at, you know, how long do people live healthy lives? Not just total life expectancy, but their healthy life expectancy. Um, you know, if people are living healthier longer, then if the rules of the game allow them to work longer, then they can continue to put into the the system. Um, this will be our going back to our neoliberal economics here. They can put into the pot of money that gets dispersed. But if they don't live long, healthy lives or the rules of the game force them into retirement, because that's the case in a lot of places of people at mandatory early retirement ages. China, I believe has some mandatory early retirement that they probably need to change the rules on that because the population is aging. Um, So aging can look different in different contexts and the same for for other um, trends. A lot of people might know that there is a correlation between really young populations and high degree and civil conflict. So you have a higher likelihood of outbreaks of certain types of civil conflict when you have a very young population, but it is not true that every young country has a civil conflict. And why is that? You know, and that's because when you have to really dig in and it can be complicated answer, you know, there's different types of regimes in place, you know, is it a personalistic dictatorship or, you know, so on. And, Um, How capable is the government? How great of a reach do they have to actually govern in the society? um, you know, all kinds of getting down into the weeds, political science rules, but those matter. So I think we need to pay attention to demographic trends really as a starting point in some ways, everybody needs to do it as a starting point. Like don't ever leave it out of your analysis because it sets the scene for things in a way much more powerful than geography would, because people are the foundation of every society. There are workers, there are soldiers, there are students. Um, But then you can't leave it there. And you have to really add in the context to say, what's unique about this country? What are the institutions and rules in that society that amplify a demographic trend or they diminish a demographic trend, dilute it? Uh, And that's where you can have some really cool studies
1: um, looking at
0: similar trends in two different places with very different outcomes.
1: And how do demographics contribute to peace, for example? And uh, I don't know, maybe neutrality of some of the countries? Does this have any connection to demographics? That's a really good
0: question. I don't know that it would, if we're thinking in terms of like the ability or the willingness of the country to get involved in international wars, I mean, what I tend to boil it down to is willingness and ability. And so how does demographics affect willingness and ability of a country to engage in war? Uh, Russia might be an interesting example here. So there were, it was, it was popular at least a few, I, th- I would say really until recently um, in the national security community to argue that Russia's demographic trends were going to prevent Russia from being an aggressor internationally. Um, And those trends were uh, low life expectancy for males, a very unhealthy population. In fact, life expectancy for males in the early 2000s, I think it was around 58 years. And to put that in perspective, for the lowest income countries in the world, it was 54. So this Mm -hmm. was very low. Um, We know that alcoholism was high. Um, So health was bad. Life expectancy was low. The country was shrinking sometimes by half a million people a year in the early 2000s and fertility was low. So there were analysts, in fact, there were people in positions of power who said Russia's demographic trends will keep them. We don't have to worry about Russia. They're not going to be able to look at this mess that they're in population wise. They, um, they can't afford to go out and be aggressive, but that's an oversimplistic view um, so we all, again, have to bring in, bring in some more of the, the political science here. And I've always argued, well, no, you're just assuming that demography is destiny, but it's not. So let the ability part of it, could Russia have enough soldiers? Well, they could if the way that they fought was perhaps more based on technology. Um, what if they did a lot in the cyber realm? then you Mm -hmm. need fewer boots on the ground, so to speak. Um, What about the effect of those population trends on the economy? Can they afford to pay for a military? Well, they can if the government, which does not have to answer to the people, moves the funds towards the military and away from perhaps social priorities, which is harder to do in a democracy. So there you Mm -hmm. go with rules of the game again. And then, of course, the willingness and we would not even have time or nor am I prepared to dig all the way into Vladimir Putin. But there was certainly a willingness there to pursue aggressive goals um, despite any economic demographic and so on um, obstacles that could be in the way. Uh, we could ask the same question of Japan, for example. So should we assume that aging countries will be peaceful? Okay, maybe not um, authoritarian countries, but what about democracies? Surely they'll be peaceful. Well, there are, um, we've seen with Japan actually an effort, there, under Shinzo Abe was one example, uh, to actually beef up Japan's national defense. I mean, Japan is in a region of the world with a lot of threats. So back to that willingness The willingness and ability, the willingness, you can be willing to change priorities to meet what is an external threat. And this is a a very tense region of the world. So demography is not destiny. It is not the case that an aging world will be a more peaceful one because there's so many um, other factors to consider. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot.
1: That is fascinating. It's just so many different things that interplay and interconnect.
0: <laughs> yes, I think that can be frustrating for people with demographics. So, you know, <laughs> I think what I always am, am worry about, you know, when I talk about the book is if my takeaway for people is to ask better questions of the demographic data and put them in context, that seems overwhelming. Well, there's so many factors to consider. Where do you even start? but I would say it is absolutely worth it to do so. And all it really requires is that you not take a number just simply at face value. A number that's often given, for example, is number of people 65 and over in a, in a society. Don't just take that at face value and say, oh, well, look at this number of people. Therefore, I can assume what the outcome is. Mm. Ask a few more questions about it, including what does it mean to be 65 in that country? Are you likely to be someone who's working? What kind of wealth do you have? What kind of politics do you have? Do you vote? Um, so just
1: peel back one extra layer, and you'll already have a richer study. And what about wealth and poverty? So how do demographics play into that? We, it's if I say it's complicated
0: again, this is when you might get frustrated. But you know, there. This is where again context matters. So let's say that we have. Um, a society where lots of youth are entering the job market every year. Now, if you've got a pair of doomsday glasses on, like this dark, shady, and you're looking at this trend, and you might think, oh, no, lots of youth are entering the job market every year. Is this going to be a situation like Tunisia, where we know that there was a youth bulge, and people um, were unable to get jobs? And so follow the causal chain down, you end up with this revolution. Well, you could look at the same one with a pair of rose-colored glasses on and say, wow, what a tremendous opportunity. And here you might bring in the concept of the demographic dividend, which is the time in um, the window of opportunity is a time in a country's age structure transition from young to old, a time when the bulk of the population is of what we would call working ages. And you know, I got to put that in air quotes because I've already shown it's different in different countries. Under the right conditions, having lots of youth entering the job market is a tremendous opportunity for a country to get a huge boost in its GDP. Um, We saw in East Asia, for example, um, you know, the so-called Asian tiger economies, they had um, they had these conditions, and so did Ireland, where they had a boost of people in working ages. They had the right conditions in place to take advantage of that, and they saw GDP growth. What are some of those conditions? They encouraged foreign direct investment. They promoted exports, free secondary education, um, in general, human capital investment, like literacy and health care, um, really investing in children and growing their human capital Um, often trying to shift to make sure that you have a manufacturing economy when you have lots of workers. And then again, the corollary would be then maybe shift away from that um, knowledge and service base when you have older workers. But they had the policies in place. Now contrast that with Tunisia where such policies were not in place. And so, you know, as a young person, it is reasonable to expect that as you enter adulthood, you can meet these markers of adulthood that you will get a job, that you will have enough money to marry if you live in a society where marriage is a really important marker of adulthood, um, that you will be able to have some political voice, a say in how you're governed. And if you have those expectations and the reality you face is different, then you have cause for a revolution. And so you know, many educated young people in Tunisia were not able to get good paying jobs And therefore, you know, the conditions were different. So we've got the same demographic trend, lots of youth and two different outcomes. One, tremendous economic growth, the other revolution. And what makes the difference? Policies. So I was wondering
1: then, do we know, do we have any data on whether the wealth of the country is sort of driving the aging of the population or is it other way around that the aging demographics contribute to more wealthy state of uh, the country? That is
0: a great question. I, and I think it is, is still a puzzle in some senses. I will tell you one slide that I often show when I give this talk in, in a setting where I can show slides is um, a slide that plots GDP per capita and median age. And honestly, if, if you look at the countries that have a median age of 35 or above, they are all over the place in terms of GDP per capita. I mean, they're, they're very low, like under 5,000 to over you know, 45,000 in the year 2000. Today we under 5,000 to above 80,000. So there seems to really be no relationship, like not all aged countries are wealthy. I think that's a statement we can make. Not all of them are wealthy. So, um, and we also see, Fertility falls in countries, even if they're not wealthy. So I'm going to go on the other end of the spectrum here. Um, Places that are on the lower income scale can see tremendous changes in fertility through certain policies. So one example of this might be Botswana. In the year 1950, Botswana's total fertility rate, so the average number of children born per woman, it was higher than Nigeria's. But in the 1970s, the policymakers, the country wasn't rich, but in the 1970s, policymakers decided to make family planning services free of charge. They, over time, integrated those services into maternal and child health services. Um, They made sure that girls' secondary school enrollment was a priority. um, And that actually changes people's preferences for children. So none of this is coercive, by the way. Um, And fertility fell rapidly to the point where today it's under three children per woman. Nigeria didn't do those things today. It's one of those eight countries where fertility is still above five children. So it didn't have to do with Botswana, all of a sudden having some windfall of resources. And that's why fertility lowered. It had to do with where they put their priorities in terms of policy. And so You don't have to be a wealthy country in order to invest in your human capital. Um, You just have to prioritize it. That's easier said than done. I don't want to oversimplify it, but governments make decisions every day about where to spend their resources, and that's one where they can make those decisions.
1: So another sort of popular sentiment, or I can say, I don't know whether it's a misconception, looking at your title of your book, 8 billion So should we be worried? (laughs) I would say no, but I will
0: tell you that I was surprised to give that answer myself. So as I said, I've always um, taught environmental politics and and really kind of approached this from an environmental studies perspective. And I think we all understand that it's not just population growth that is an issue in the world. It's much more so consumption, Um, but it constantly, the overpopulation debate, rears its head all the time. And I see it. I mean, there's, I never give a talk where that's not one of the first two questions that people ask. Mm. Um, and my students, my undergraduate students will come to me from their high school, their secondary school with the assumption that the world is overpopulated. So when they hear 8 billion people and they're also f- learn every day about how bad climate change is and environmental degradation, the assumption is this is a bad thing. Um, People are a great resource in the world. So I thought I would finish writing that book and be pretty doom and gloom because that's how a lot of my courses end up, but I wasn't. I felt very optimistic because while we have this differential growth right now, we have these big divides between lower income and higher income countries. I do see us all moving and the data show us all moving towards this world of population aging, which I think is a good thing. Because if you feel as an individual that if you have a baby, that baby is going to make it to adulthood and you feel pretty confident about that, that's really positive. And that's actually how fertility lowers, right? You know, people would have seven or eight children, hoping some of them make it to adulthood, but knowing how the chances of that might be really low. Nowadays, if you have a baby in most places of the world, you can be pretty sure that baby will make it to adulthood. So people have fewer children. Why should we think of that as a bad thing? You know, that's a good thing. Um, if we're living longer, healthier lives and that's why the population is aging, isn't that also what we would hope to happen? So I think we'll top out world population. Of course, we don't know. I actually think it's going to I think it's going to be slower than we expected. So I would say if you asked me this three years ago, um, I would say, all right, it took us, you know, 12, 13 years to go from 7 billion to 8 billion it was the year 2011. So, um, uh, it was when we hit 7 billion and we should be hitting 8 billion, I would say early 2023, based on what I, I'm seeing from demographers, the time to the next billion, we knew it would be slower. So it may be 13 years or 14 years, but what we've seen in the last few years is places that have a large proportion of the world's population, like India and China, they have sub replacement fertility now, like we said, and that drives a lot of our, um, global projections. I mean, when you have put together about 3 billion people out of the 8 billion, obviously that drives a lot of our global trends. So our world of 8 billion has slower population growth. And I think that is a good thing. And for a couple of reasons, one is it means people are living longer, healthier lives and knowing that when they have children, they will live to adulthood. And also hopefully it does mean less pressure on the planet, but only if policies are in place to regulate our consumption or to incentivize us to have lower consumption. I mean, number of people on the planet by itself means very little in terms of climate change and resources without adding in there, you know, what are those people's daily habits like? Is everybody eating, you know, a hamburger every day and therefore, you you know, meat consumption, of course, drives climate change. And, you know, how are people using the resources um, water and trees and all of that are they using them wisely as stewards or are they using them with abandon because they're not working about the future so i think what people can take from a world of eight billion is who are these eight billion people where are they and what kind of policies do we put in place to make the most of the tremendous resource that is eight billion people
1: So, uh, for example, the younger nations, maybe they would not like to contribute too much, for example, uh, in terms of uh, um, cutting their uh, emissions, you know, trying to get their country to the wealth level of other countries. And how do demographics uh, sort of interplay with all of these complicated factors?
0: I think there are they are a correlation, as you said. So, I mean, I, I think the main part is lower income countries make effectively the argument that we didn't do this. We didn't get us to where we are today. And therefore, and we don't have the re- monetary resources to get us out of this. And therefore, you wealthier countries who are the ones who got us to where we are today and have the resources should share a bigger burden it happens to correlate with the countries that are younger are also lower income. But I don't think that demographics is really the causal factor behind that. It's
1: yeah, really that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what is the role of public education about our demographics? For, I can give an example as of myself. I've been watching Hans Rosling videos on statistics on human populations and it completely, completely shifted my perspective. So should we teach more?
0: I think we absolutely should because, you know, if I think about most people in general go into some kind of nonprofit or um, private sector work, right? Most people don't get a job in government. Okay. So, what do businesses need to think about demographics? Well, you know, demographics shapes the entire landscape of a country. So, any business wants to think about, well, where will we be in five years? Well, where will the world be in five years? And what's so useful about demographics is that it's, it's, our, it's like the best crystal ball we have because the people who will be entering the labor force in 10 years, well, today they're in primary school. We already know how many of them there, there, there are. We can kind of see the future in our own age structure. So I think that's one reason why people would want to pay attention, but another would be risk analysis. You know, where do you want to invest in society and where are the greatest needs? So let's say you have a humanitarian organization that you work for and you want to think about the, the near future, the next five years, well, where are there likely to be the greatest humanitarian needs? Demographics can help you understand that because we know that countries that are very young and growing have, of course, um, low educational attainment. They have joblessness and persistent poverty, and they're more prone to conflict. So you can kind of use demographics to understand where those hot spots might be same for opportunities in the future. Um, you know, where do we see the, in the world, um, lots of young potential workers, that might be a great place for putting, you know, your offshore manufacturing facility and so on. So I think everybody should learn more about demographics because no matter what kind of work you do, it can help you understand um, the landscape so much better.
1: And where do you want to see us heading to in the future?
0: I will say that I want to see us less afraid of demographics. So as I show in 8 Billion and Counting in the book, no demographic trend is inherently good or bad. So just because we're headed into an aging world or just because we used to be a much younger world, uh, neither of those is inherently good or bad. It's really what you do with it. So I would love for people to walk away from the book with a list of the kinds of policies that perhaps their country could put into place or their community. I mean, it's not always at the country level, of course. I mean, education, I think of as a very local thing and and health access, and I think of as very local. You know, So what kind of policies would you wanna put in place now to shape the kind of world that you'd want tomorrow?
1: And what discoveries in your research for your book 8 Billion and Counting surprised you the most? I think the fact that fertility—I knew fertility was falling. I mean, I studied
0: population aging as a researcher, um, which is why I've talked about it so much. That's my—that's my favorite topic um, within demographics. So it is not as if I don't look at this every day, but I still learned so much more about how quickly fertility is falling in places in the world that I really would have assumed it was still somewhat higher. I mean, pulling the the statistic for myself, I just did it for me. I did it so I could put it in a a newsletter. I think it showed up in one of my newsletters, um, a world of 8 billion, that there were only eight countries with a fertility rate of five or higher. That was a surprise. So even though I know we were headed to an aging world, the pace at which we're heading there has surprised me.
1: Hmm. And um, so imagine that you had to colonize the Mars or some other planet, and you had to put a population of humans there. So what kind of demographics do you think you would put there just to have like a really flourishing uh, society?
0: You know, I I mean, I think that's where it's such a, it's such a a funny idea to think about, you know, oh, are we ruining this planet so much we have to go somewhere else? Um, You know, I would say, no, we don't have to go to Mars. (laughs) You know, we're, we're already, we're already heading towards i think a healthier planet as long as we stay on the path so we can't be inactive about this um you know one of the challenges that we have i said that low fertility is not in and of itself bad and it's not cause for alarm but when and and this gets to the you know what would it be if we colonized mars how would we have an, an extra generation there what are the social structures like on Mars? I mean, that's really the question. It's not about who goes there. It's about who, what are the settings mm. for these social structures? So I think we should actually be somewhat alarmed by super low fertility. You know, South Korea, for example, um, it has super low fertility. It's had about 1.1 children on average per woman. That, you know, a total fertility rate of one means each generation is like half the size of the preceding one. What makes it so low when you start to ask women, they don't want to have children. They don't want to get married because they feel that the social structures and the gender roles for women are incredibly stifling. I feel like there's not an ability to work outside the home and have adequate child care in place um, that that's, you know, it's mm-hmm. incredibly difficult that raising children is super expensive. So, you know, what kind of rules of the game? are you going to put in place on Mars? Because that will determine how many children people really have.
1: Well, this has been a truly insightful discussion. So can you tell us what are you working on now and what will be your next project? Thank you
0: so much for letting me talk about 8 billion and counting. I have really enjoyed it. Um, and, and I'm already at work on my next book. Hmm. Um, one of the chapters in 8 billion accounting, I think it's chapter six, but I'm not sure. You know, sometimes these, I change the numbers at the last minute, but there's a chapter on um, warfare and womb fair, WMB, womb fair. Um, and it's really a chapter about some demographic engineering, um, which is deliberate strategies, usually by a government um, to shape population trends. And I'm, I was fascinated as I wrote that chapter and I've, I've taught about it and read about it and wrote a little bit about it, um, over time, but I really thought that's, that's what I want to expand on for my next book. So, um, I'm starting a fellowship next year at the Wilson Center in DC, where I will work on a project that talks about how the U.S. government throughout its history has engineered the population or tried to engineer the population to make the nation. Uh, and countries, everybody does this. It does it, democracies, non-democracies in the year 2022 or in the year you know 1922, governments will encourage births of some people. They will discourage or stifle births of other people. They will allow certain groups to migrate into the country while shutting the doors to others. Um, they'll neglect certain populations so that they have lower life expectancy and poor health while they put health resources into a different segment of the population so I think you know this book will end up being about the United States but it has something to say about every country in the world because I don't think we all realize how extensive demographic engineering has really been in our lives and um I think it's important for us to recognize that. So I guess I would say this next project is about the dark side of population, um, which is, I always talk about how government policy can shape an outcome. In this case, it's really about, you know, the dark part of shaping an outcome.
1: That sounds super exciting. I hope you come and talk to us about it when it's done. I would love to. Thank you so much. And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
0: you can find um, everything about me on my website which is jennifershuba.com and my last name is s-c-i-u-b-b-a and um or you could probably google eight billion and counting and i think my book would come up that way but i have a Substack newsletter free to subscribe to and it's generally under four minutes um every other week um explaining you know what's behind the headlines what are the demographic numbers behind the headlines of some popular news stories? And, you know, what have I been reading about demographics and and why might you be interested in that? So um, that landing website will take you to all those places, but you can find a world of 8 billion newsletter on Substack. And I'm also on Twitter and LinkedIn. So I would encourage people to follow me on both of those platforms.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much.